Welcome. I'm Carol Sanford. I'm the host for the Responsible Capitalist podcast to help you align your money with the meaning and values of your life. Today, I would like to talk with you just before we hear my guest interview today a bit about what is the highest leverage platform or way of helping well, helping bring together really community of investors and entrepreneurs who could make a difference. After about uh, 25 years of trying a bunch of things and falling on my face, along with taking a few other investors and uh, foundations down with me, we have for about the last 15 had a really solid way of looking at it. We believe and experience that an education platform is the best way to move along in a mentoring developmental process any entrepreneur group, and to do it with the investors connected to it. Now, there are three platforms which I use to do an education platform. Now, by that I mean an education platform means you bring people together regularly with mentors in the group that are going to follow up with them in between, but about monthly uh, for at least a year, in some cases we've done up to two years, where you're introducing them to the ideas of business and business done responsibly, how it is you embed financial effectiveness with responsibility and avoid all the externalization of cost, but also at the same time how you ensure that you actually can grow earnings margins and cash flow. We give them a way to look at how it is you grow a business in a way that it's not extractive from the planet, and it's a different form of growth. So all of those kind of things it takes to be a really successful business. We also, in that way, having the mentors in the room, make sure there's integrity and philosophy of what we're helping advance so that we know the investment that we're making in this set of entrepreneurs has a set of mentors who have a similar way of thinking and are not having a mix of old traditional ways which get poured on top of the business, and instead are really bringing the total integrity of the package together. So now that you have that idea, I want to tell you three different kinds of cohorts or, or communities that we create as ways to do this, and it's been different in different cities. So the first one I would call a value-adding process forum. Uh, again, remember this is education. So the value-adding process means we look all the way from earth to earth. So we go back and look if we're talking about fooding, Fooding makes it a, a value-adding process, right? Not food, because food's kind of on the end of it. But fooding starts with the creation, working with, saving, making healthy seeds. Then there is the process of, of planting, caring for, tending, and then harvesting. And then you have to move along if you want to be whole and think about the converting, really making sure something unique is drawn and that it comes from the story and the uniqueness of that place, it moves down all the way to the distributors and to the chefs in the kitchens of the restaurants, and then down to how recycling is done. So you can get a picture in your mind of your looking at every aspect of the living process. Now, this is not a value chain. This is the living connection of where value is being added in every place. I always start that with story of place, which is the way of understanding deeply, and I do mean deeply, uh, I have slideshows which I'll post for you also so you can find out more about what I really mean by story of place. It means you go look at its geology, hydrology, biology, its settlement patterns, its economic development patterns, its culture, its psychology, and its spirituality, and you find the patterns that make it unique and have for millennia, and it takes a very deep set of professionals to do that. It is not something you do in a facilitated group. 
Using that as a base, you put this cohort of the value-adding process together, and like, for example, in the Hudson River Valley, or in the particular case that I did it in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And those people become so connected to one another that when you're looking at starting up a new business, that community who's already been in the education platform work can help that. The second way that you can pull together a cohort is to find a neighborhood. Now, by the way, <clears throat> you probably will figure out immediately that you can cross-reference these. But think about in the middle of Brooklyn, where you have communities that could, as my friend Ethan Rowland says, need to be lifted. So if you find a neighborhood, let's say 20, 30 square blocks, that if it's something isn't pulled together, then that community will ever be forever be suffering with a crime rate, with poverty, and with children with no opportunity. So we often go in and just take a community, a block of communities uh, in a community, and work with the same education I just described, but now the whole intention is to have that whole neighborhood really become alive and having the businesses you need to have work with that. There is a little bit of this going on in Las Vegas uh, that is trying to rebuild and establish at least uh, different kinds of local communities, which would be, or excuse me, local businesses, which really would support that particular community. One of the major things that I often do there is, uh, and I learned this about 30 years ago, working with Kingsford in closing down facilities, is you can create what Jane Jacobs called import replacement businesses. So you already got a market. People are f either buying it because it's being shipped in from somewhere else, or they're driving to another town, sometimes even to get their car fixed. Uh, and so you've got a built-in set of buyers, but you then replace it with import replacement businesses who now can serve those people but locally and keep the money in the community. The third way that I go about doing this is looking at, if you think about the story of place, I mean, if you want to get a feel for what that means, think about what makes New York, New York, or what makes Paris, Paris, or San Francisco, San Francisco. What you're experiencing as an answer to that, even though you may not instantly have words for it, is the story of that place. In San Francisco, it goes all the way back to the gold industry and to the uh, fur traders and the, the things that went on that were there as a part of native peoples and later uh, the introduction of um, white people who came, Northern Europeans. When you start to understand what that place is, you understand that businesses for a long time have been leveraging that. So we pull together those businesses who are already operating that way and get them to foster and help the next round of businesses be consistent because the greatest return comes when a place is consistent and integrated with its identity. Today, I want to introduce you to someone who's looking at lots of different ways to think about how, including he's a great educator, and let him describe to you how he goes about making sure that the entrepreneurs he brings together and with the investment he puts in them is likely to succeed. Welcome, Looney. I'm so excited to have you on the Responsible Entrepreneur podcast. Would you introduce yourself a little bit about what you're doing right now and uh, how you feel like you fit with the idea of the responsible entrepreneur and the responsible capitalist. So say it your way. Uh, thank you for having me, Carol. Uh, so my name is Michael Libis, better known as Looney. Uh, I am a serial entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur for about 23 years now. Uh, and three years ago, I stepped away from being a software entrepreneur, the typical tech entrepreneurs you read about in the paper, uh, to be what I call a conscious entrepreneur, which is basically the same thing as a responsible entrepreneur. Uh, I'm now the entrepreneur in residence at Pinchot University, uh, first business school in the world to teach a sustainable MBA. 
I run Fledge, the conscious company accelerator, working with mission-driven for-profits around the world, trying to make the world a better place. Uh, and I write books for entrepreneurs to help all entrepreneurs around the world get going. Great. You're busy being. <laughs> uh, one of the things that is interesting that you just spoke to is this bridge that we walk over. Uh, most of us have at some point, unless we grew up really unusual, where we go from one way of viewing what we're doing to adding an ethic or uh, a particular way of thinking, which in this case might be called moving from a traditional entrepreneur to, to a conscious entrepreneur or a traditional investor. How do you differentiate those? What is, and what does that bridge look like that you walked across to uh, switch kind of the way you were thinking about it and working on it? Uh, so in my particular history, it actually goes back to, to sitting in the back of the classroom at Bainbridge Graduate Institute, which is now Pinchot. Uh, I had decided years ago to give back some, some of my time. I had been an entrepreneur then, I think, about 18 years. Uh, and wound up sitting in the back of the classroom uh, at Islandwood on Bainbridge Island uh, at, at BGI, helping these entrepreneurs with their ideas, helping these MBA candidates. Uh, and I did that for about nine months while running my fifth software company. Uh, and that software company, we eventually merged it and it moved out of town on me and I was left free to do anything I wanted. Uh, and as I, kind of the joke goes, there's no way that they would ever serve Kool-Aid at BGI because all the food is local and sustainable and whatnot. But nonetheless, I drank it just like everyone else. And so when the time came to do something next in life, it had to be socially conscious, environmentally conscious, it had to be responsible. What does due diligence look like when you look at an entrepreneurial firm that you're going to invest in through Fledge and then, you know, hopefully longer term? Uh, there are different questions you ask, I think, when you're doing that kind of due diligence and can then measure the effect that they're likely to have. Can you give us a little bit what goes on in your head about that? Um, sure. So this is one area. When I first jumped into this space, I thought I would have to learn. Um, I thought I'd have to unlearn a lot from the tech world. Um, and again, because of my niche of working with for-profits, in fact, business is business, right? Um, you just have to bring something to market that someone will buy for more than it costs you to make. That's the fundamental um, one-liner of business. Um, and these companies are no different. So we are impact first. And so we do care when we interview the companies, when we look at their applications, and when we talk to the entrepreneurs, uh, we do care what they do. Uh, and so if they're building an app that saves saves a dollar to an American, that may not be super impactful. But if they save a dollar to someone who only makes a dollar a day, um, that has a much bigger impact. Or if they uh, take the smoke, if they, if they clean up cooking for someone in the bottom of the pyramid, that has a big impact. If they, uh, uh, if they do something nice in our kitchen here in the U.S., uh, maybe not so much. So... Uh, unfortunately, the industry and no one else before this has a really good solution to put a number on an impact. So we can't just go off, grab a standard, get a number and say, we're going to pick the highest of this. We have, to, we have to go with gut and feel. And in working with enough of these, I see hundreds of these applications per year it really, and, and, and talk to you know, dozens and dozens of, in, of impact investors per year. It actually comes down to what I'm, uh, I call taste. Right? We all have different tastes, we all have different interests, and so our interests and our tastes uh, are, are decide what gets into Fledge, 
And if you go to Investor Circle or Eliminate or any of the other uh, angel investing groups that do impact, you see a different set of tastes. And when you look at Gates and Skoll and, uh, and so forth, you see yet a third, third and fourth and fifth section of taste. Um, but they all do look, they all have one thing in common, which is those companies are trying to make the world truly better, not just saving a dollar or, or earning a dollar. I think it would be fun to hear a fledged story uh, so that we actually can see in practice, if you could, from the time you selected them potentially to the time that they're producing this kind of change in the world, that, and particularly one that you feel like reflects what you're trying to create in the world with having Fledge exist. Uh, so I'll start with one that I interviewed before, which is Community Source Capital. Uh, so this is a team that I met while I was still mentoring at BGI before Fledge was even a business plan. Um, and um, one that I thought really could make a difference. So uh, for those of you who didn't watch that interview real quick, Community Source Capital is a crowd lending platform that allows we the people to fund local businesses that we already know uh, with $50 loans that return us $50. Uh, so it's like Kiva.org for businesses we know. Um, we didn't know whether that, whether that would work or not. So when they joined Fledge, it was just an idea. It was two people in a dream. Uh, and we went through the process of the, uh, the due diligence you do with the customers to see what might work and what might not work. Uh, we spent a huge amount of time in this particular company with lawyers to find out uh, what could legally be done because there's a lot of rules around lending and, and investing. Um, and when they left the, left the program um, 10 weeks later, uh, really all they had was a much better plan. They, they hadn't launched yet. There were still some, uh, some dangling ends on that legal, legal issues. I don't think they had actually incorporated yet. But walking out the door, they knew which direction they needed to go and why. And they had looked at every other direction they could possibly, possibly think of and knew that if the direction they were going failed, they knew what plan B was and plan C was and plan D was, and they had a, a process for that. So that's pretty common for an idea stage company. Uh, some of them get a little further and some of them launch a product while in Fletch, but, but um, 10 weeks is not a lot of time. Uh, flip side of that, uh, one we just graduated uh, last fall is Obama Stove. So here's a company that is accidentally the largest manufacturer of cook stoves in Africa. Uh, so I found this entrepreneur, uh, he applied to the program, uh, he drives a cab in Seattle. That's his job. Uh, he's a refugee from Ethiopia. He moved to this country about 19 years ago as a teenage refugee. Uh, not school, no, no high school diploma, no college diploma, um, right? just, just an ordinary person. Uh, and following the normal path of things, he, he you know, he got, he learned English, he got a job, he uh, earned way more money than his family back home in Ethiopia, where $400 a year is middle class. Uh, and the norm is just to send them back some money. But this person was a little different. He decided not to just send the money, to go back, to find something that he could help them do to get, get up on their own feet. And that turned into cook stoves. And that was actually years ago. So he had an up and running company in Ethiopia making cook stoves, uh, they had made 200,000 before they walked in the door at Fledge. But he, knew, he didn't know how to do He didn't know how to do business. He had never been trained in business, never took a class, doesn't know how to do accounting, or didn't know how to do accounting, uh, didn't know how to do much anything except build and sell, which again is what you need to do, and he succeeded at that part. Uh, so we brought him in, and we, we surrounded him with 
mentors, which is what the program does. We flooded him with a dozen or a dozen and a half people to advise them. Uh, some of that were manufacturers. So a few people who do manufacturing for a living sat down one-on-one, gave him suggestions for how to manufacture in a, in a more efficient manner. Uh, we found him some money, which is something that this company had never seen before. The only money in this company was his money, right? Again, as a cab driver. Uh, so he went back to Ethiopia in December, a month after the program ended. He implemented those changes. He lowered the cost of production. Uh, he's increased profits in this company. It's a profitable company. Uh, with the money we, we got for him, he bought a truck. This is a company that delivered products around the entire country of Ethiopia, which is bigger than um, California. But they had to rent a truck to do that. Now they own a truck. Uh, we're still working on some more of this growth. We need, still need to import steel, but we know how to do that now. Uh, and so this company is on track to try and stay the largest company, largest crypto company in Africa, if not you know, by far the largest company. So talk about how that plays out for you as an investor, for Pledge as an investing group. And is there anyone besides you, Lenny? I mean, you're you're what I associate with Pledge, but you are also not only a mentor to the entrepreneurship, but you're an investor. So how do you hold and evaluate and use your investor hat in this process? Okay, so um, again, we're looking for impact first and return second, right, in, in that order. Um, and we hand over what's now $20,000 per team. It's been, it's been increasing each, each time we run the program. We're, we've run it five times, six times coming up. Um, and in exchange for $20,000 and all our help, we take a 7% ownership in each company, which is normal for an accelerator. Um, and ours is uniquely structured, though. So instead of just 7% and we wait for someone to buy us out later, it's 7% where we're really buying 4% of future revenues to return us a four-time return. So we're buying 4% of the next $2 million in revenue. That gives us a return on investment that we care about, uh, that my investors care about. We're, we're funded as well. Um, and uh, it gives them the money and the help they need to get going. And so it's a fair, a fair price of capital, uh, much fairer than normal equity. Uh, and we're helping companies that today are not seeing funding from anywhere else. So we're, we're catalyzing the, the, uh, the growth of some of these companies. How I, I this is something I think I didn't know, which is you're funded and there are people making choices to invest in this who are the investors. Are those the same people or do they change each year or how do, how do you go about building the capacity to fund this kind of thing? I guess is what I'm asking. Uh, yeah. So Fledge is, again, it's a legally a venture capital fund. We're funded by impact investors, all individuals, uh, about 37 individuals at this point. Uh, and so uh, we, can, we call that the fledged investment community. So uh, I didn't quite answer your whole question before. Uh, I'm the only full-time employee, but I'm definitely not the only person in Fledge. So there's, there's me running the show. There, there's 37 investors who are attached to this who really care about whether or not these companies work or not, because that determines whether or not they get a return on investment. And then there's 220 others, which we call mentors, which come in and help the team. Between all that, we're a community of uh, you know, 250 people there that are trying to help these companies around the world. If people wanted to uh, read a bit more, I know you have a website. Why don't you just at this point tell them where they can go find out and then make contact with you if they had interest in following up on the Fledge part of our conversation. Sure. So on Fledge, it's pretty easy. It's fledge.co. 
Co. The guy who owns the dot com never got back to me. Um, and you can reach me at Looney, L-U-N-I, at Fledge.com. L-U-N-I at Fledge.com. Great. I will also write that at the base of the podcast when it goes out. So I'd like to know a little more about how you got to be who you are. I mean, I know you at some point became an entrepreneur the first time in a series, but how did you get to thinking as you were growing up? And what was your family environment like? What was your exploration and discovery like that created who Looney was that wanted to become an entrepreneur and eventually an investor? Um, I'd say I joke about this with my wife. I'm kind of in my family business, which is entrepreneurship. Uh, so my father started a company when I was uh, 10. Uh, it became the second largest employment agency of accountants and bookkeepers in the country by the time I was 16. Uh, you go back a generation and they were all shopkeepers. Um, my grandfather had a, uh, had a, uh, a hardware store turned sporting goods store, which my uncle still runs. Um, that was started by, <clears throat> uh, that store was started by his father. Um, so it actually goes back that many generations. And my other great grandfather was a tailor when he moved to this country. Uh, and, um, just kind of in the family genes as we start things. Um, the, the, the outlier is a great uncle of mine who was the only one who went off and got a PhD and was a college professor. Uh, and so I get to fall in his shoes as well because I get to teach it at Pinchot and be a college professor. Uh, where do the investment interests come in? Um, again, it, it all dates back to this Kool-Aid. So, uh, A, I love, I love entrepreneurship. It, I've basically been doing it all but one year of my adult life. Um, and then... You know, starting three years ago, uh, when I when I had enough of this Kool Aid and went down this path to start Fledge, it just is so much more exciting to invest in something where uh, the potential could make a difference for you know, a billion people around the world uh, in a way that it, it, it again isn't just saving a dollar or or you know sharing this photo with with your friend. Uh, and so I see the. I see the announcements from all these uh, tech programs now on what they're doing, and uh, really all the excitement around that has, has pretty much disappeared. So I hear you talking about investment in a couple of ways, if I'm hearing you right. You were an entrepreneur. You knew the excitement and the agony of being an entrepreneur, the ups, the downs, the discoveries. And then when you decided to be an investor, you invested two ways. One was you figured out how to do a venture capital fund. But the other is you invested in teaching, and so you're really working a lot more on helping pass what you learned directly through mentoring, but through the university. If you had to say what it is you feel like uh, is kind of core to what you teach at Pincho and through mentoring, what would you say are the primary principles or guidelines you seek to pass along? Um, well, it's kind of an interesting question because um – I actually teach the same material at Pinchot and in Fledge uh, and in, in pretty much everything else I do. Uh, it's called The Next Step. It's a, it's a book series that I wrote uh, in order to do this work. Um, and it really comes down to uh, maybe lesson one, which is entrepreneurship is really hard. Uh, I, I usually start off my lessons if I'm doing this in person with, with a little story, which is um, – Right? Your, your friends and your spouse and your family are probably telling you right now that you're crazy, that starting a company is a crazy idea to do. You know, and they're right. You're the one who's wrong. It is a crazy thing to do. And 
And then I often end with, you know, you can take it from me, I've done it six times, right? And, and they do call me Lumi. Um, that's kind of the core of where I start and then I take off from there on all the things you need to know to be a successful entrepreneur. And um, what's fascinating in my journey over the past three years and a little bit is I had no idea what I knew when I started down this journey. When I was just doing software companies, I just did them and never took the step back to do the meta-analysis of what it, what it is that we're supposed to do next and why and so forth. We just did it, right? We being this, the founding teams. Uh, and then one day I got asked to teach at Pinchot and I then had to figure out how to teach it. And that began this, this new journey of stepping back and saying, okay, what do you actually need to know, right? Of all the things, of all the advice you find out there, and there's a ton of advice on entrepreneurship out there, uh, what is it that you actually need to know and what, what can you skip right now? What can you gloss over because uh, there's too much to learn? And so I've narrowed it down to what I think you need, uh, and that's what I teach. Well, you know, we ought to tell them more about what the books are. Uh, I know that there's over 20 of them, so we probably don't want to do the title of everyone, but it's the next step, and then what are the nature of the series? Yeah, just, just seven, not 20 yet. Oh, seven. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So they're all called the next step. Just to make it easy on me, they're all called the next step, and then they all have different subtitles. Uh, and the point is, uh, the first the first and main book is called The Next Step, uh, Guiding You from Idea to Startup. Mm -hmm. So the first book I wrote was simply a 80-page guide um, outlining the process that all entrepreneurs need to take between the time you have the idea, and I don't teach ideation, um, through uh, having customer revenues and, and having a real startup, um, which you cannot you know, teach the whole thing in 80 pages, but you can teach the, the arc of story in 80 pages. And so that's the basic outline for my classes. Uh, that's about 16 classes. Uh, and then what I've been doing since writing that book is writing books on the individual topics. Uh, so in the series, not in the order written, but in the, in the uh, order that the books are generally um, read in, uh, it then goes into um, uh, startup marketing and startup sales and financial planning and how to make a financial plan uh, and how to put together a great pitch because you may need to do a pitch for investors, but you certainly need to do a pitch for customers and recruiting. Uh, and then uh, the latest book is called The Realities of Funding, uh, because most companies think they need funding. This is a book that's, uh, that really is the nitty gritty of how it works and how hard it is to find funding. Uh, and then there's one more uh, at the end of that series, which is how to split equity amongst the founders. Um, that's a great example of uh, a knowledge that was in my head that had just never been written down. Um, I had two of my fledglings come to me in the same week asking for uh, information on how to do that. I, I spent 45 minutes with each one going through everything I could think of, and then I just sat down and wrote a 50-page book that dumped out the same information so I wouldn't have to teach it again. Um, and then there's one more. Uh, the seventh book is a really quick idea on how to fix the Business Model Canvas, which is someone else's book, uh, to try and make it uh, more complete. Between that, that's seven books. I'm sure there's more coming, uh, but, but that's, that's good for now. That's about 400 pages of material. Um, I have one last formal question, and then there may be other things that you know we should be uh, putting in here that I don't know to ask. But uh, you, a month ago or so, talked about that you were going to do a conversation on how you 
assess the level of impact. And I'm probably not saying exactly what you said. A talk you were going to do in the evening, try and get some relationship. And I have a lot of people who ask me about that. And I have my own interpretation. You know, my own last book has some ideas on that. But I think from where you stand, especially with startups as and having been an entrepreneur, that people would be very interested in any tools or instruments or just processes you're using to try and assess impact. Um, and I don't even know how to frame this, so maybe I'll just stop there and let you see what you would do with answering that question. All right, thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's a good setup. So I, I have been busy. One reason I didn't get that other book written is uh, I, I'm just about done with the uh, eighth book that I've written, uh, which is called The Pinchot Impact Index. Uh, and I am uh, uh, aiming to have this book out in about three weeks. Okay. Um, it's coming hot off the press. Um, the fundamental issue it's addressing is uh, we have no, I, I kind of mentioned this about yeah. half hour ago, we, we have no way to put a number on how impactful that particular company is or, or that fund or that foundation or, or whatnot. Um, we do have, uh, we now have a standard, the IRIS standard, that we can choose a bunch of specific defined standardized measurements. And so we can say how many hectares of trees we planted. We can say uh, how many households were, were touched by this. We can say how much CO2 was reduced. Um, but what we can't do is compare two groups or add two groups together where one's doing trees and one's doing CO2 and a third one's doing blah, blah, blah. Um, that no one's found a good way to do that yet. Uh, and the bigger problem for uh, organizations like mine, which turns out to be the same problem foundations have, is we want to be able to aggregate, in my case, for 40 or 50 or 100 different organizations and have a number assigned to each one and aggregate that together and say what the total impact is across the whole portfolio. Right? So that's whether it's, it's a nonprofit portfolio of projects or for-profit portfolio of investments, same problem. Uh, so I think I have a solution to that. Uh, and it's coming out in print and it's about, again, I, I don't write a lot of words. It's about 110 pages of description. Uh, and, uh, I won't give the total, total, um, punchline away yet, but, uh, it solves the problem by, um, eliminating most of the argument, right? So most of the time when I sit around and talk about this with either students or, or entrepreneurs or investors, we sit around and try and argue about whether or not this particular project that is planting trees is more impactful than that one that's doing some global health or this one that's doing cookstoves. And the fundamental problem in doing that is that we're never going to agree. Uh, and so the Pinchot index uses a mathematical trick, uses orders of magnitude to say they're all the same. So if you're doing good, then you rate a one. And if you're doing more good, you rate a two. And if you're doing an excessive amount of, of good, you rate a three. And the scale goes to seven. And seven means everyone in the, it means that you have achieved the impact that everyone on earth is living in a state of enlightenment and nirvana. <laughs> um, that's as high as the scale goes. Okay. Uh, it's a rather, rather uh, squish scale on purpose so that we can't argue about whether you are a one or a two or a three. Right. I love it. So it sounds like the eighth one would be heaven on earth or something like that. <laughs> so yeah. Seven is heaven on earth and six on this scale is um, a good day on Star Trek where anything you need, you can walk up to the wall and ask for it. Right, you want some tea, you walk up, you ask for it, and you get it. 
right? You want a house, you walk up and you ask for it and get it. Anything you can dream of, you can have. So it not only is it going to be informative, it sounds like, and useful at changing the conversation, but it sounds like a lot of fun, too. So how do we find your books? Uh, all the books are available on Amazon uh, in print and, and, um, and electronic form. Uh, and uh, the new one will be up there as well. The new one should be up there um, by middle of March. Okay. Uh, and you can find them most easily given the million books they have by searching for my name. Uh, so my last name is Libes, L-I-B-E-S. Uh, there are very few people in the country with that name. So if you type that in, you, you, you'll generally find the book. That's great. Well, this has been great fun. Do you have any additional wisdom or final words that you would like to offer that I didn't ask for, but you think it would be either fun or useful to offer? Um, nothing comes to mind at the moment. Well, you've done a lot already, so I greatly appreciate it, and I thank you for joining me on the Responsible Entrepreneur slash the Responsible Investor uh, Capitalist podcast. Thank you so much. Looney, I love what you do with Fledge. I love what you do with the books you write. I love what you're doing at Pincho and giving them a voice in the world to help people see a whole different way of doing business. I hope people do go to Amazon and look up your books, <laughs> all eight of them. Uh, I've read three now, and they have all been very crisp, succinct, and useful. In addition, if you would like to see more of this interview with Looney, you can go to my Vimeo channel, Carol Sanford, and you'll be able to find outtakes that we did not include in this. You also there will find many other interviews, and you can find the whole podcast of many of those at my website, seed-communities.com or carolsanford.com. We'll continue to bring you great podcasts coupled with the books that I've written, The Responsible Business and The Responsible Entrepreneur. Hopefully they give you the leverage you need to take your business and your investing into the world of responsibility. And we'll see you here next time. Thank you.